0: Hey, turn your, in your Bibles to a uh, fresh new book, a fresh new study we're beginning in 2 Thessalonians, page 958 in our, our Bibles here. 2 Thessalonians, looking at the first five verses uh, today. My only New Year's prediction is that I don't expect the world to get better. Um, and if that means that in some way life gets harder for those who believe the Bible uh, is God's Word and whose faith is in Jesus Christ alone, I won't be really surprised. But I'm not pessimistic about that. Just just follow me on this. This is why I'm not pessimistic, because you see, our gut reaction might be, oh no, we're going to be mocked or, or criticized or, or persecuted even more. Here's what gives me hope, if we recalibrate how we think, if following Jesus becomes less popular in the coming year or decades, will the church of Jesus Christ be more effective or less effective? And is that our real goal? Because if our goal is comfort, that may not happen. But if our goal is to be effective for the gospel of Jesus Christ, then maybe more difficult circumstances will serve that purpose best. You see, as we read our New Testament, we have to realize that Christ chose to launch and build his church in a time of pretty serious persecution. Um, and let's be, just be honest that We've kind of lived in a, in, a, in a blessed bubble for a couple of centuries in America to think that we could have the incredible freedoms uh, that we do. Most of us face very little persecution. I know perhaps some of you uh, in your family system or, or work or wherever may face more criticism as a believer in Christ than I do. But if or when things get harder to proclaim Christ, I think with the New Testament as a whole, and, and this little book especially, tells us we can lean into those hardships and experience some of the greatest spiritual strength possible. Open doors, best days can be ahead of us not based on the popularity of the gospel but the power of the gospel and our confidence in the power of the gospel. So 2 Thessalonians, I was was looking back at my preaching records a while back and I realized that I I preached through the book of 1 Thessalonians on the first Sunday, January of 2016. Of course, you all remember that. (laughs) And I I, I really did intend to get back to 2 Thessalonians sooner than eight years later, but uh, better late than never because this little letter I think is very appropriate for today and it has some big time encouragement to us as believers no matter what goes on in our world. There's the assurance that God will make things right. And the question then becomes, what will be our focus between now and then? Uh, The first two verses of 2 Thessalonians are really identical to the opening verses of 1 Thessalonians, if you care to compare. Let's read. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First and second Thessalonians are letters to the church of Thessalonica, uh, written in the same year, uh, most likely A.D. 51, according to the best chronologies. They were written just months apart, probably just a couple of months apart, early summer and late summer of that year. Uh, Paul Silas and Timothy were a missionary team that uh, uh, had headed out from antioch We'll see and probably arrived there like in November of the, year, of the of the previous year stayed maybe about three months before and we'll read the story they had to move on of paul's thirteen letters in the New Testament. Uh, his, he only wrote Galatians before the Thessalonians. So this is like early in his writing ministry. Paul had been a believer. Uh, he was no newbie. He had been a believer for maybe 17 years. Uh, he had been a missionary for seven years maybe. And uh, it wasn't new except that he had now begun to write back to churches where he had had ministered. So let's just review a little bit of um, the story of the. Church at Thessalonica by putting in the context of the New Testament missionary journeys. This is on Paul's second missionary journey that he came here. After the opening days of Christianity in Jerusalem, really the center or sending place of the church was Antioch, and that's where the missionaries went. From And that was, that was a large church, and that's where missionary efforts went from. Uh, the first missionary journey of Paul was just pretty close to Antioch. I mean, that's still several hundred miles. But uh, <clears throat> as some of you recall, he took that journey with Barnabas. And after that first journey, sometime later, they decided to go and make another journey. And there's an interesting disagreement between Paul and Barnabas about whether or not they should bring along this young man, John Mark, who had abandoned them halfway through the first trip. And they decided to split ways and form two teams. And so Paul takes along this man that we see in verse one, Silas. And so then after that, they head out, and Paul and now Silas start on this second missionary journey, and you'll see they pass through the areas that they were at the first journey, but eventually they get to the church of Thessalonica, and so that's the story up to where they meet uh, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. The rest of that journey would take them next down to Corinth, of course, we recently studied 1 Corinthians. But in Corinth, Paul spent some 18 months, and it is from Corinth that he then wrote both letters back to Thessalonica. The missionary journey continued. He spent considerable time in Ephesus, eventually Jerusalem, Antioch, and was back to there. The third person listed here, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they had met in the first journey in Lystra. He was a young man, and evidently whatever Paul saw in his life uh, was promise for ministry. And so second missionary journey coming through, Paul says, why don't you come with us? And he became a learner and eventually a greatly trusted partner and help in the ministry. A very young man who was then added to the team, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Of course, Paul wrote the book, but he says, hey, this is the team uh, that is a part of this ministry. One of the great joys of ministry at Open Door through the years has been to see when men and women get involved in ministry when they are young. It's an exciting uh, launch to really life. Uh, You'll notice sometimes that we have pretty young people on the stage here. Uh, Often we have all young people as they're running sound and media. And it's just exciting to see they're getting involved in high school and in young adult uh, opportunities to be in in leadership service and leadership. And that bodes well, I think, for uh, the future of the church, regardless of the future of the world. So he begins by, uh, in verse 2 then, just to greet them with this kind of standard greeting for Paul, but a very significant one, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is, this, you, you kind of can you race past that when you're opening a letter going, oh yeah, yeah, he says hello. Uh, but it's really important when Paul says grace and peace, because Paul not, he never got over the grace of God for him. The fact that he could be in a relationship with a holy God was entirely because of the grace of God. Because Paul had been not just a persecutor, he was was an accomplice in the stoning death of godly Stephen, Acts chapter 7. He he was a persecutor of the church, Acts 8 and, and 9, before God captured his heart and he came to faith in Christ himself. So grace is what he's all about. As a result there is peace with God. So so there's there's a holy God and there's sinful man, but because of Christ, there is peace. Paul would state this so succinctly when he wrote to the Romans. Therefore, since we have been justified, that means made right by what? Faith, putting our trust in Christ, we have peace with God. How? How? through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Have you thought about that lately? That you stand in grace if you have placed your faith in Christ. You stand in grace. So, so this is just kind of, Paul just kind of bleeds grace and peace. So he says, there is grace for my past, which gives me peace with God in the present. And then sometimes he would include the word hope, which means a confident hope about the future. We need to review that. That that is your life. That is who you are before God if you are a believer in Christ. There's grace for your past. There's peace with God in the present. And there's a confident hope for the future. And rinse and repeat that as you Think through maybe regrets or or whatever God puts or whether your your mind puts there that God wants to replace. So don't slide past Paul's greetings too fast. Uh, this is how God sees you right now. So what was going on in Thessalonica that Paul would write these letters? I think we have to understand the pressure that they were facing, the hardships they were facing for their faith. Just glance ahead, we'll look more carefully later, but look at verse 4. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. The time that Paul spent in Thessalonica bringing the gospel brought them intense persecution. In fact, Paul had to run for, leave for his own safety and theirs. And so I'd like, I think it's valuable for us to go through the story, sometimes when you're reading a letter of, of Paul, to find out where does it fit into the story of the church in the book of Acts. So we're going to read some uh, longer portions on the screen to, to make sure, because we really do have a good, a good sense of the story in Thessalonica, <clears throat> verse 1 of chapter 17. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to thessalonica where there was a jewish synagogue synagogues are where jews gathered to worship when they were hundreds and hundreds of miles from jerusalem after being scattered so they formed these little local assemblies for worship on the sabbath or saturday As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days, three weeks, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, Old Testament, of course, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. So doubtless he will have been in Isaiah 53 that speaks of a suffering servant who would die for the iniquities of us all and then would see life. So he brings that message to say, this happened. Jesus is the one. And some of the Jews were persuaded. They believed and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. So some Jews, many non-Jews, interestingly, Did non-Jews, the Greeks, come to synagogue services because they were interested in the scriptures, or was it that new believers were faithfully sharing the message that Paul was bringing them about Christ? But many non-Jews were coming to faith in Christ, including women uh, in that culture. You know, it's kind of like that would be a secondary note. But, and maybe Paul and Silas weren't even thinking, "Well, we're going to have a women's ministry here. But, you know, God knew there would be this response among the women. But, as that's the good news, right? The people are coming to faith in Christ. Then the conflict begins. But other Jews were jealous probably the leaders of the synagogue, who felt their power eroding. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. So uh, we'll see that uh, Jason was hosting Paul and Silas uh, normally. So so they're they're, they're trying to create a, a riot out of this by God's sovereignty. They did not find them. So maybe Paul and Silas and Timothy were on the other part of town. Maybe they actually were kind of trying to stay, uh, lay low. But it says that um, when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world now have come here. By the way, that's a compliment, isn't it? To think that the gospel is having such an impact that the reputation of Christians preceded Paul and Silas. And Jason verse 7 has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees. Not true. Saying there's another king, one called Jesus. It's twisting the truth. I'm sure they spoke of Christ as the king of the kingdom of God. When they heard this the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. And so they're they're, they're creating the chaos. It's it's working, right? Then they made Jason and others post bond. That's money. In other words, saying, give us a bunch of money, and if there's any more trouble, you're not getting it back, and let them go. And as soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. That was a a city about um, 45 miles south uh, and west of Thessalonica. I'm sure that uh, Paul hated to leave town on one hand, but his presence made things unsafe for everyone. Probably he was hoping that uh, by leaving town, maybe now uh, things will simmer down and they can uh, just continue on their way. But the reality is that the hatred of the Jews in Thessalonica, the hatred they had for the Christians was so great, they actually found out and followed Paul All the way to Berea. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. So Paul went further. He was kind of the the, the lead guy, of course, most threatened. And then left with instructions, left Athens with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. So, so Paul has to go some almost 300 miles further south to be able to find safety in there in Athens. If you know the story of Acts, he, begins to, he talks about the unknown God and a little bit different non-Jewish setting there. So they weren't safe in Thessalonica. They weren't safe in Berea. And do you know where Paul and Silas had been just before they got to Thessalonica? It was Philippi, Acts 16. If you go back, rewind the tape to that, you find that that's where Paul and Silas were imprisoned and their feet were in stocks until the angel showed up and released them. And it was an amazing uh, deliverance there. So how's the missionary team feeling by the time they uh, get to Athens or eventually Corinth? What, what kind of missionary prayer letter do they write? How are things going, Paul? Well, I'm basically getting kicked out every place I go. I'm kind of on the run for my life. I can't imagine getting hauled off this stage for preaching the gospel. I can't imagine having to uh, you know, take my wife Priscilla and, and, and head out of town at night just to be safe. I can't imagine being thrown in jail for the gospel. But frankly, that's happening in so many countries. So much of the world today faces that kind of persecution. What makes, what makes people so mad about the gospel of Jesus Christ? What does the word gospel mean? It means good news. I mean, think about it. Good news is good news about Jesus. Why, why would you hate good news? Well, it's pretty simple. If the gospel, the good news of Jesus is true, that we can be saved only through faith in Jesus Christ, then every other religion and every other idea is wrong. That's why it's so maddening. It's because the gospel is by nature exclusive. There's one God, and he said, I will provide the one way of salvation. I will come in person incarnation Christmas, I will come in person, Jesus Christ, the God-man, and I will pay for the sins of the world. And he is the only payment for the sins of the world. And so Jesus would say, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That eliminates every other religious idea. That's what makes People, man, that's why the Jews in Thessalonica hated and jailed Jason and threatened Paul's life because the teaching of, the, of salvation by faith in Jesus threatened their legalistic teachings about the Old Testament law of Moses, threatened their power structure. If it's, if it's about Jesus, then, then what about the synagogue? And I'm the synagogue ruler. And if you believe in Christ, it changes everything indeed. It changes everything about you and me if we put our faith in Christ. 2 Corinthians five seventeen. if you, anyone who's in Christ is a new creation, there's something spiritually new that happens in us. We have a different destination, Philippians 3, that, 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 that we are citizens of heaven. We are foreigners spiritually here, but we are actually, our citizenship is there in heaven. Every, everything has changed about us. Our nature has changed. And so we shouldn't be surprised, understanding how, how radically transformed we are by the gospel of Jesus, we shouldn't be surprised that we are at least misunderstood, if not despised, for our faith in Christ. So, about a decade, a little more than that later, Peter was still writing the same thing to many other parts of the Roman Empire. He said, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the Spirit of God, or Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Have you ever thought of that? If you are insulted, what does it say? If you're insulted, you should get really mad and really afraid. Because that's the typical Christian rea- reaction. Instead, it says, if you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. It was interesting to, to think, you know, Silas is the one part of this team. He's the one that had his stocks, his feet in the stocks in, in, in Philippi. At the end of 1 Peter, we find out that Silas was the guy who delivered this very same letter. So he was just, this was just like routine for him. 10, 12, 15 years of just knowing that, that the gospel will bring persecution. So, so that's basically the context of first and Second Thessalonians. So as you read things like "Grace and peace to you," it's not like, "May we all have a prosperous 20,24."." <laughs> And paid vacation, and a good retirement plan, and popularity, and good health. It's not saying that at all. It's saying that may we recognize we're subject to the grace of God. That's why we can have a relationship with Him. And we have peace with God by faith in Christ and Christ alone. And so we'll be okay in a troubled and often antagonistic world. So knowing this relationship of Paul with the Thessalonian church and knowing if we have read the previous five chapters of 1 Thessalonians, knowing that Paul's already talked to them about standing strong and living pure and and waiting for Jesus to come in the rapture, Paul found it necessary a couple months later to write a follow-up letter because of some mis- information, misunderstanding. Some people came along and were teaching false doctrine and actually were putting, were falsifying the document, putting Paul's name on it, it seems. A few weeks from now, we'll be talking about that in chapter two. So so people are going to lie about the doctrines and so forth. And so his life in ministry was hard, but he writes with such positive encouragement, we see now in verses three and four. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more. You may have the word exceedingly or abundantly, and the love <coughs> every one of you has for each other is increasing. Faith, love. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. Paul is really encouraged about the Thessalonians faith. If you have been with us last uh, this past year, we've been studying we were studying 1 Corinthians. He never ever said anything quite like that to the Corinthians that he was really encouraged by their faith. And yet in both letters to the Thessalonians, he says that. Now, Paul loved both churches, you can be sure. But he was able to affirm much more in the Thessalonians. Paul didn't say that they had arrived spiritually We don't arrive until we arrive in heaven. But he said their faith was increasing more and more. If you have a goal for 2024, how about that? That you would have a trusting confidence in God a lot more this next year. Wouldn't that be a great accomplishment? If you trusted God more. In fact, it's a unique term that Paul uses here. For this increasing, in fact, it's the only place in the New Testament he uses this particular word. Your faith is increasing, and then he added a little uh, prefix to it it's hyper increasing. In fact, the Greek word is hooper, which is where we get our word hyper. He says, You have a supercharged growth in your faith, You, you have an exceptional trajectory of spiritual growth and he's so excited. Why do you suppose their faith grew so strong? Could it be because of the threats against them by the local officials and the, the threat of, of, of it becoming a federal offense if they tell lies about uh, being against Caesar? Is it, did their faith grow strong because they were forced to trust God more deeply with things they could not control. Isn't that how our faith grows? The Corinthians, 400 miles south, a little different political situation. They had internal problems. There was the infighting, there was Christians suing each other, there was arguing over uh, idle meat, there was immorality. They, They had internal problems. The Thessalonian Christians faced the fear of imprisonment for their faith. I was thinking this week is the American church more like the Corinthians arguing with each other, morally confused, idolatrous, or are we more like the Thessalonians at this point? And if we Actually, face more persecution. Would we grow stronger? I I don't want to. I don't want that. I don't pray for it. But will we trust God more when we have more to trust God for? I think that, that that's true in every realm of our life. We enjoy freedoms in America that I greatly appreciate. We've been able to worship freely and send missionaries freely. I think God has put uh, given a special um, uh, Blessing on America in so many ways that we can be as even even the prosperity America has experienced that could could send missionaries and and accomplish so much for the gospel around the world. I believe it's a it is a God thing. But the thing about financial prosperity is the more we are financially prosperous, the more easy it is to focus on being financially prosperous. And. Uh, maybe instead of being gospel-focused. So I, I, I don't know what, what turns uh, laws could take that affect our freedoms or, or et cetera, but I have to assume that if our freedoms are in some way reduced, it is maybe even more likely that our faith would be supercharged than if we were winning every battle that we hope to win in the ballot box or court of public opinion. Um, See, see, Paul is noticing about the the, the Thessalonians the right stuff. He's noticing how their faith is growing. He has has rethought compared maybe to our our normal thinking. We we think, how how popular are we? Do people drive by and like us? And he was thinking in terms of how effective are we? And so he says, I praise God that your faith is so growing. And what else? And the love every one of you has for each other is increasing and abounds and grows. There's a correlation to a, a growing faith in hardship and a growing love uh, among the believers. And we all know the last three or four years that uh, love for one another in the body of Christ has been tested and, and frayed at times over non-gospel issues, Right? Maybe, maybe, maybe it's been so valuable that we would, would learn some of those, those lessons and, and more and more as we will, we will face more of those kinds of issues and every other kind of issues of, of, of possible conflict because, because Satan longs to divide when, when God says, you know, sometimes hardship can really unite us. Because I, I picture the Thessalonians' experience. They see their brother Jason taken into custody and putting up a bond that threatened his family finances and, and then a mob of enemies angrily trying to, to, to follow and, and kill Paul, perhaps, and, 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 and Silas and Timothy. And, and I imagine a church just rallying together and in spiritual desperation for, for, their, the, the, for, for the Paul and Silas and Timothy and, and for themselves. And he says, your love is increasing." He never said that to the Corinthians. I I can't help with studying two letters back to back of thinking of the comparison, both happening about in the same, kind of the same region, kind of the same time. He never said to the the Corinthians, your love is increasing more and more. What did he do instead? He devoted a whole long chapter, Uh, to, to 1 Corinthians 13, this is what love is. Guys, do you even understand what love is? Come on. He didn't have to do that for the, for the Thessalonians. He says, you guys know what love is. And I see it increasing in your persecution that you face. So, I'm bragging on you. I, I see that suddenly the, the grudges are irrelevant and the things that happened years ago aren't that important. I, I see you guys coming together. I wonder if if, if people, if couples, husbands and wives came to faith in Christ during that same era that suddenly they, they realized that some of the, the contentious competition for power or the bitter resentment, these things just, just fell off because they were united in purpose. They worshiped Christ together. They had a newfound faith. They had a, they had a common purpose for presenting the gospel to their unsaved family and friends. So he says, that's why I'm bragging on you, verse 4. Among the church, therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. When Paul says, among all the churches were bragging about you, where was he? What church was he at when he was bragging and writing that he was bragging? He was in Corinth. So, a little addendum to to Corinthians might be that if we had been there, we would say, we would realize that Paul might have said, Do you realize, Corinthians, that your brothers and sisters up there in, in Thessalonica? are not arguing over their favorite preachers, Paul, Apollos, Peter. They are not squabbling or or, or testing the limits. Can you eat meat offered to idols? Is that okay for Christians to do? They, They just aren't doing that because that's not what they're about. They're facing persecution for the gospel. So he says, I'm bragging on you guys. I'm bragging on you about your perseverance, perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials. Perseverance is, first of all, just the ability to endure. You may have the word steadfast or patience. Paul is referring, of course, to the, the persecution. It's, it's, it's in the context. But maybe the, you know, the Corinthian church wasn't as persecuted, it seems. And he knew that he was, uh, or at least we Spirit knew, we, he was writing to two millennia of believers who faced maybe different hardships. Perseverance is what every one of us needs in every difficulty we face. Enduring something, sometimes enduring someone. Persevering through pain, uh, financial struggle. But, but, is, but is Paul just talking about what you really need to do is just you know, buck up and endure and grit your teeth? Notice what he says, perseverance and faith, they're linked. An unbeliever can have perseverance if they can just endure. A believer is able to have perseverance and faith or with faith. You see, endurance alone can be me-focused. I just have to be strong enough. Perseverance with faith is God-focused and future focused. Because faith recognizes God's involvement in my hardship, my my trial. What is God doing? What is God developing in me through this situation that he could not do any other way? That's where it's perseverance and faith. God's doing a work. God has a plan. God is transforming something about me. So Paul says, I'm bragging on you guys for how you're persevering while trusting God. So in verse 4, clearly Paul is affirming them by saying, I'm impressed. Verse 5 says, and you realize that God notices too. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. He assures them that God will will, uh, reward them, approve them as worthy someday because they are persevering, trusting him. All this is evidence, so you may have the word plain or manifest. It means that other people that see you actually can tell that you have this spiritual strength. It's become, it's an obvious thing. It's a visible, outward thing of an inward steadfastness. I hope, that, hope that's our goal in this room, that we would be living as visible proof that we trust God. Um, people who know us personally as a Christian should notice that we face hardship differently. By that, we can't think um, faking it or hiding it or being inauthentic. People need to know sometimes to a degree what we're going through. But I have so often heard people remark about people from Open Door who are suffering. It's amazing how differently they seem to suffer or what they're going through is, 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 is amazing. I've talked recently with some Actually, two different friends who have maybe limited days due to disease and cancer, and it's it's not just their confidence of heaven that that strikes me, but their their steadfast endurance of their disease. That that is is so in, inspiring, encouraging to me. This reveals it says God's justice. How's that? It seems that. It's like the Christian who is going through trials trusting God is able to see God's justice at the, at the finish line. I know that he will make it right, even if he doesn't make it right right now. It's, it's that visible steadfastness of understanding and trusting the eventual outcomes. God will make things right, and so as a result. You will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. When you see the word worthy, don't say, okay, he's not saying you're worthy of heaven. You, you aren't, this isn't about earning heaven. That, that's not what the worthy, word worthy means. It means that there is a recognizable correspondence or correlation between your values here in this life and the values of heaven. To live worthy of heaven means that I know what's going to matter then, and so here I am now, and I'm living according to those values now. You're living worthy of the values, that which will have value eternally. I'm so often impressed when I talk with someone going through really hard things, how they are, I'm beginning to see some eternal purpose to this. Or I simply believe that there is one. That's walking worthy. I hear trust in the goodness of God, like we talked about last week in Psalm 136. That's worthy of the kingdom of God. So I just need you to know that we, you know, we, we, in, the, we in this church family who uh, maybe at the moment are suffering less than others, we are learning from some of you who are suffering more. And, and don't ever uh, overlook the ministry of your faith to others as you go through hard things. don't. That means, you, you know, again, don't just fake it, everything's fine, fine, fine. That's, that's not faith, but you're trusting God. Finally, Paul clarifies the cause for which they suffer. The kingdom of God for which you are suffering. <laughs> it's about suffering for the right reasons. Are we suffering for the right reasons? Sometimes we create our own suffering, but the kingdom of God, are we suffering toward the gospel, if you will? Again, 1 Peter has so much about suffering uh, for our faith. And so Paul said, or Peter said, if you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any kind of a criminal. In other words, don't, don't be disobeying laws, or even as a meddler. Uh, don't, don't, don't be suffering because you're annoying, you're opinionated, you're, 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 you're rude. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. So if you're, you're suffering for the message of Jesus Christ, as, as Jesus had said earlier, blessed are you when people insult you. Blessed? Yeah, really. Persecute you falsely, saying all kinds of evil against you because of me. You're blessed if it's because of your faith in Jesus Christ. It's about the cross. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Great is your reward. Peter knew that. Paul knew that. As a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. So this little letter looks at uh, suffering or persecution kind of from both sides. On one hand, he's exhorting here us as believers, encouraging us to have that perseverance and right attitude when suffering. But on the other hand, we'll see as we study on that there's an assurance that we have that God will make things right. There is justice for those who oppose the gospel of Jesus. And so it is so normal that we, we should expect pushback for a message so radical that we, are, we have salvation by faith in Christ alone. We can be and strive for comfort or effectiveness, but maybe not both. If our, if our goal is to be comfortable, then, then don't mention that you follow Christ. Don't focus on, on the gospel itself, but if you do, then your goal, if your goal is to live worthy of the kingdom, we, we can expect to, to some, some, some criticism, some persecution, and, and by that means we are actually becoming the person that God is wanting us to grow into with an increasing faith, an increasing love, and that would be great goals for 2024. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we we watch a lot of things in the world that we know are going on. We're aware sometimes of our suffering brothers and sisters around the world, and and we pray for them. We pray for their endurance, and and uh, Lord, we care on one level, and and yet sometimes until it touches us in some personal way that uh, we feel the the rub of of uh, the world against our faith, or the, the enemy, I should say, against our faith, then, then, Lord, I pray that you would sustain us and uh, g- give us that optimism that you are you're at work. Uh, you, you are at work clarifying what is important. You're, you're, you're rearranging our priorities. You're helping us to be gospel-focused and not distracted by so many other things that, that we, Lord, we would be the ones who are growing strong through the hardships that we face be the persecution or anything else that you allow into our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.